three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone to the No Outlet Podcast. Folks, tonight we have an extremely special guest that I am absolutely thrilled to have on the show. He's been involved in some of the most iconic work of our time from working with Matt Parker and Trey Stone in Cannibal the Musical <laughs> to starring in Orgasmo and Basketball, which, by the way, was co-written and directed by one of my heroes, uh, Mr. Zucker, uh, of Airplane and the Naked Gun franchise fame, to appearing in South Park episodes, to co-starring in an Oscar-nominated movie with Bradley Cooper, uh, also directed by the genius uh, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, This guy has done a lot, and he has no signs of slowing down. Uh, I've been a big fan of his work uh, all the way back to Orgasmo, and I'm really looking forward to having him on the show. So without any further ado, please give a big, warm, no-outlet welcome to D.N. Bahar. Good, good evening, Deanne. How are you? Good. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. And you know what? Hey, I'm, my apologies for making a correction, but oh, it's actually Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Matt Stone. You, you call them Matt Parker and <laughs> that, Trey that, Stone. That's we we have learned that I'm dyslexic. Which with, maybe with names. that should be they, that should be their aliases. Maybe they should switch it up. So kind of, the, the funny thing just is to I'm shake looking, things up a little bit. So it's 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 a little <laughs> just just we're gonna pull the curtain back a little bit here. I'm on the East Coast. It's a little bit late for me right now. Um, I'm tired okay. and and I'm looking at the names and they're <laughs> written properly, but I said them wrong. So there we go. We're off to a great start tonight. Um, so we're going to, yeah, play- Hey, it's comedy. It's good. <laughs> That's right. It's all, it works. We are going to play a game called 20 questions and it always starts okay. in the exact same place. And that's with question number one, question one, uh, Deanne, what are your thoughts on interdimensional beings? Um, I think that those are probably what people, um, see as ghosts. I think the ones that, uh, Maybe the people claim to interact with, um, maybe that's what they are. They're not actually ghosts. I dig that. Okay. So like, you know, when you somehow, when you see it or when you capture it on film, maybe what it is, instead of your aunt Tilly, it's actually somebody who's teleporting through, uh, some type of energy hole. Um, yeah, maybe. Who knows? I mean, who's to say it isn't? I really don't know. I, I, yeah. I like I that. Think it's, I'm open to that idea. Me too. You know, I, I like asking that question. I asked it to somebody else who um, was on the show, who was an amazing improver, and, she, and her answer was kind of interesting. Her answer was, she feels like the internet, uh, interdimensional beings are already here, and they're those weird sea creatures like four miles down that nobody ever sees, and that that's where they <laughs> teleport into. They teleport into like uh, nine miles down on the Arctic shelf. So, um, but again. Who knows for sure? Yeah. All answers could be probable. Um, all right. So yeah, you, I'm open to that. There you go. Um, you are originally from Colorado, and you now reside mm-hmm. in the great state of California. Uh, for mm-hmm. those who have not lived in both places, uh, what's the biggest difference between those two states? Mm, I would say the weather, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, it's nice. It's nice being in mostly sunshine here in LA, but it's actually a little, a little depressing at times only because I do miss 
a change of seasons. I miss I miss the fall. I do miss sometimes the snow. I don't miss driving in the snow, but I do miss like you know, it's nice during Christmas time for the winter to have some snow on the ground, but I get that when I go back home. I, right. I fly back to Colorado to see family and friends. So I do get to experience it out, out in Colorado, but I don't get anything really that's uh that changes much, you know. It's kinda weird how um constant sunshine can sometimes freak you out because <laughs> it's just like I don't know. If you're used to weather, you know, it does yeah. seem a little strange at times. So it, it took me a little while to get used to that. But um, I would say overall, I do prefer a warmer climate. Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've lived in New England my whole life and I used to go to LA all the time for business. And one time I was there for uh, an extended period, like 12 or 14 days. And I remember thinking just everything seems too um too too similar every day like the weather you know new england is always yeah. probably very similar to colorado it's always different no matter what season it's supposed to be um but yeah, yeah colorado is crazy weather it's right? constantly changing i mean it can change even constantly within one day it can be really weird it can snow in the morning and by noon it's like melted off and sunny again yeah variety love it so speaking of colorado um when, and I guess I should say if you make your way back there, what's the local restaurant in Colorado or, for that matter, local establishment in general that you always want to get back to for a nostalgic uh, perspective or just to feel like, okay, I, I've come back to Colorado because I went here? Well, you know what I'm actually really excited about is that Trey, Trey Parker and Matt Stone purchased Casa Bonita, which is sort of like a like a Mexican Disneyland. It's this, it was a really horrible restaurant food wise that I would go to all the time as a kid, you know, for soccer parties and birthday parties. Yeah. And it's, it's this amazing, amazing place. that's all indoors, but it's, it's, I don't, there was an episode actually on South Park that showcased it. And it was actually pretty on point with what they showed. And it was, uh, it was fun to see that again in an animated form, but it was, something that I remembered back to not ever really enjoying the food there, but enjoying the environment. Cause they've got like cliff divers and like, like a pirate's cave and like all this crazy shit in there that is really only fun if you're like 10 years old or, or younger, but there's some nostalgic value there that I still embrace. So I just remember having so much fun there as a kid, as a kid. But the thing that's crazy is Trey Parker and Matt Stone, they re they actually just bought it cause it was wow. going to be, um, yeah, it it was it was in danger for a while of being kind of torn down, I think, and then somebody somehow it was uh, saved by being established as an, an historic landmark. And then Trey Parker and them they just decided because they loved it as kids too, and they're like, you know, the one thing that sucked about that place was the food. So what they did is they bought it and they hired this gourmet chef no who way. is going to actually completely renovate the menu, so it'll. It'll actually be a place where people want to go to actually eat and not just have fun. So I'm actually, I'm stoked to go back. Once they get that opening up for the grand opening, I'm absolutely going to Casa Bonita. That's, That's a so place cool. I, I actually miss. Yeah, that will be fun. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's, things like that are worth saving. And uh, with two people like that, you know, in charge, there's uh, there's obviously going to be some changes. That's great. And, you know, it's... Um, I, I've heard about it before. I didn't remember the name, but somebody had told me about this crazy Mexican restaurant 
out there and they mm-hmm. and the cliff diving was what um what got my attention but now that you say it again it's like how do you do cliff diving at a mexican restaurant in colorado <laughs> they did it they pulled it off wow it's, uh, okay. it's crazy cuz when you look at the outside of the restaurant there's really no indication of what's inside but once you go in it's like you enter this freaky wonderland that's like like it's it's all built down lower so like in, in particular the section where there's the cliff diving it's like it's a pretty good drop that the guy is falling from sure. and it's actually you're you're like amazed that this is actually in this restaurant that's in this little strip mall <laughs> it's just it, it's so bizarre and it makes the tacos taste okay <laughs> Sort of. Yeah. They will taste better now. Yeah. I remember being as a kid though, even like, even as a kid, I wasn't really, I didn't have a taste for anything necessarily. It was more unique or fancy, but I knew for sure as a kid that their food sucked. So I was just like, I think every kid that went there, we were just like, we ate the sopapillas with honey and then just darted to the games and just ran around the place like little madmen. But unequivocally, unequivocally poor quality food. That's what we can say. Yeah, and you know, it's hard to mess up a taco, but they somehow did it. Did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, you know, I honestly, I'm, I've got a pretty eclectic taste. I like everything from, I mean, I like everything with the exception of, uh, I don't like country music. I've really never yeah. had a flavor for that yeah. and uh, not really into polka. <laughs> uh, but you know what? You know what's funny is the the one music that I always gravitate gravitate towards. That I, I would say if I was on a deserted island and I could only bring a certain selection of music, I would listen to uh, to big band music. I like nineteen forties big band music the most. For some reason, whenever I hear it, it just instantly makes me happy. So I'm almost wondering if like like if reincarnation's a real thing. I think I might have lived in the forties because it just it feels like home. Whenever I listen to it, it just instantly makes me feel good. Interesting, like an art, like Artie Shaw and that type of sound, like that. Yeah, 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 all that. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, anything, really, anything from the '40s. I just love it. Huh, that's pretty cool. Um, so this is no, obviously, you probably have never seen a, a, a '40s big band in concert. But my next question was going to be, no, what was your? Do you remember your first? concert that you went to without parents yeah it was my very first concert that i went to at red rocks was uh howard jones oh yeah 80s that uh, was the very first concert i went to and it was the very first concert that uh where i i saw and smelled people smoking weed and i was like wow okay that's what that is because i'd smelled it before right. as a kid but didn't know what it was i had never seen anybody actually physically smoking it yeah and that was the first time i saw it in person i was like holy cow okay these guys are smoking weed and that's what weed smells like right i get it okay (laughs) so did he sell out red rocks he must have uh you know i don't even remember i don't know i would imagine it probably was very close to being sold out because it was like really at the height of his popularity yeah yeah it probably was i bet it was 85 something like that 83 one of those three years yeah i think it was like 83 and it was uh had amazing seats too we waited all day for general admission and i was like in the fourth row right in the center and at that level you're like right even with the stage he's like 20 yards away from you it's like fucking amazing yeah that's cool um, what are your thoughts 
about the fact that right now, somewhere on this planet, there is somebody who's working in a computer lab programming an AI bot to have high levels of sarcasm and a serious attitude problem? I think it's really dangerous, honestly. I think that it's, uh, I think it's a really not a cool thing, to be honest. It's, um, I, I think it was probably inevitable, though. And I, you know what's crazy is I actually spoke with uh, one of my neighbors recently, and he was telling me that he was a former military guy in, a, in Israel. And the thing is with Israel, every, anybody, everybody who lives there, um, it's actually a requirement to have some military training. Yeah. Everybody does it. Compulsory. Yeah. And so, yeah, they all have to do it. And so, um, you know, of course, afterwards, then they can, they have to do it for like a year or two, but then they get the choice, obviously, if they want to continue on. And so he did. He actually rose up in the ranks quite a bit and then um, just eventually got out of the military because he wanted to go into real estate and make some money doing that. So he moved from Israel to America. And he was telling me, though, that he's got still several friends that are really high level military guys. And he said that, uh, and I've already known this anyway, he said, that, you know, really basically any, any uh, computer technology or new things, like even a cell phone when it first came out, anytime that that sort of thing is introduced to the public as this new technology, you have to understand that that is actually about 10 to 20 years old, right. that it's already been in the military for at least 10 to 20 years yeah. before it actually reaches the public. So he's like, you know, all this AI technology that you're hearing about and the robots and so forth, he's like, they're so far in advance, way beyond that. He said that he's got actual friends that are top level guys in the Israeli army who actually have their own robots. They have their own personal robot that is actually like their bodyguard. Good and he says, essentially, what is going to happen is that these robots and drones are going to be the only thing you see on a battlefield. He said that, you know, they'll never really be fought with humans in very, very soon. Wow. He said that essentially all, especially the most, you know, high level reconnaissance stuff. He said the thing that's amazing about the robots is that they have these internal cooling systems that do not register on a, on a, uh, on a heat, on a heat, um, and when they use radar and, sure. and satellites to try to find out where people are at and stuff, there's no heat civilians. Signature. They always, yeah. They, you, yeah, there's no heat signature with the robots, so they're like super freaking stealthy, and they can get in and out of places without you even knowing they were even there. And they don't have kids. And uh, exactly, yeah, and they don't have kids. They don't have a family to leave behind. There's yeah. a robot, so it's. Um, but he was saying that, yeah, essentially, um, it's going to get to the point where it really will be straight up like Blade Runner. Wow. Where there are going to be robots amongst the civilians that you would never fucking know it's a robot. Unbelievable. Horrifying. Yeah. It's scary uh, as shit. It's scary as shit. <laughs> um, you know, just yeah. a quick side note on the technology. So, you know, we're, we're about the same age. So when the stealth fighter was first, quote unquote, unveiled, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the Gulf War, you know, people then started saying, there have been 25 years of sightings of this strange black plane that no one knew what it was as a UFO. Um, and mm-hmm. last summer, uh, I've never seen a UFO before last summer. Last summer I saw one with my sister, three or four people saw it with us. And I'm not sure what it was, but I know that it wasn't a plane like you'd normally mm-hmm. think. And I don't even think it was from another planet. I think that it was some, you know, advanced military craft 
that has some cloaking yeah. technology because you could see it and you could see it move. It had three points. It was a triangle. It was moving through the sky. And then it, and it's the size and the way it was moving. You could tell that that was the shape. And then all of a sudden it just kind of like faded away. And I yeah. was, and you, and I was just like, Whoa. And you know, your first thought is, wow, that's UFO. But I think it's more likely that it's some advanced, you know, air force technology. I think so. I yeah. think that's probably a safer bet than yeah. most of the quote-unquote UFOs we see are actually just super high-tech military vehicles. What's coming next? All right, let's shift gears. Rank in order of overall cultural impact the following. The Star Wars saga, the Harry Potter universe, and South Park. So rank them one, two, three. <laughs> oh, definitely uh... – Star Wars would be number one. Okay. Um, in terms of just impact overall, and then uh, probably South Park before uh, before Harry Potter because I, I don't. I mean, Harry Potter's a lot of fun, but I don't know a lot of people walk around talking about wizards and shit. <laughs> <So> it's like <laughs> it's a very it's a very specific market, <laughs> but yeah. I think that that the humor that's um, displayed in South Park is definitely led into a lot of people's consciousness. And they do a good job, South Park does a great job picking up on what's happening at the moment and quickly turning it into, um, uh, you know, a cartoon that season. Like, they don't miss any time. Oh, yeah, their their production time is so fast. I mean, they can do an episode in, like, four or five days. It's so, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, really yeah, cool. it's really great because they're able, like you said, keep on top of, of stuff that's very current. Have you noticed recently how Pat Sajak has had a got a really rotten terrible attitude towards contestants on the wheel of fortune <laughs> yeah he's been kind of a jerk lately i've noticed that <laughs> Thank yeah you. i don't watch a lot of uh wheel of fortune but when i did here and there whenever it's on i'm like i think pat's getting a little tired of this job <laughs> right. so i you know when i was sick from school i'd i'd watch the game shows and that was on you know i remember seeing it when i was a kid and i didn't really watch it much and my girlfriend watches it every once in a while, so I'll catch it. And the last few times I've watched it, it's like these poor people are trying to, you know, win a little bit of money and they're missing letters or words or whatever. And he's just like ripping on them. And uh, I, I think you're right. I think he's just getting tired of it. Um, yeah. So let's talk about uh, laugh tracks. So we both have seen shows back in the 80s that were uh, very well respected comedies, Cheers. Um, I could go on and on, uh, that have laugh tracks, mm -hmm. you know, fake laugh mm -hmm. tracks. Uh, and that's kind of gone away th I, in my mind, thankfully, but you know, I wanted to get what your thoughts, uh, or your, or your overall opinion of having a laugh track on a TV show. I think that it insults the audience out of the gate. And I wanted to see what you felt about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a weird thing because, it, yeah, it's definitely coaching you, coaching your emotions in a weird way. But it's, I don't like a laugh track per se, but I do like a live studio audience. I do think yeah. that there's some value there because I actually, I worked on a um, a sitcom called Two Guys and a Girl in a Pizza Place. It was actually yeah. the, the first thing that Ryan Reynolds did. <laughs> totally. And uh, yeah, I had a really fun character on that. I actually literally did the last four episodes before the show got canceled. I had a recurring role as the mailman who uh, delivered mail to their building. And I was, I had like a love affair with one of their neighbors and um, it was actually a lot of fun, but what was really cool about it was that we filmed the whole thing in front of a live studio audience 
and it was awesome because it gave it gave the actors some kind of immediate um, feedback. You know, right. it's like being on stage, and you have that exciting energy of of you know having an audience there that is responding to what you're doing, and it I think enhances your performance. It enhances my experience absolutely. But it was sort of like being on a stage with a safety net because you know if you screw up, they can just call cut and you start over. And that's actually part of the fun as well is that. Mm the audience likes it when you screw up because it just is a fun moment and it just also humanizes the entire experience. And it's just fun to see the actors and, you know, and just to do something goofy sometimes Yeah, because it, uh, it makes the audience laugh in a different way and then you just get to do it again. But there's that same energy that's carrying through again when you get to do it again, that just uh, kind of makes the whole thing a little bit special, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I dig that. Yeah. I, I, the only show I've ever seen taped live was a talk show. I was out in LA for, for business, um, like I mentioned earlier, but I would have loved to see a show like that taped, taped live. I think that's, that's a good energy there. Um, what, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, what was the first movie that you saw that you remember watching and thinking to yourself, okay, now, like in the same way that you recognized the pot smell and, oh, they're smoking pot, what was the first movie that you saw and you saw a joke or, or, or heard a joke and it didn't go over your head and you understood why the adults were laughing? Because a lot of times as kids, you'll like see a movie maybe that you shouldn't or you're a little bit too young for and then a lot of the jokes are just flying over your head. But then there's that one moment where you see something and you're like, okay, I get it. And it's like that aha comedic, uh, you know, identification moment. Probably, I, I would say it would be, yeah, I would say it was probably Airplane, David Zucker's movie, oh, the comedy. Sure. Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing that and just laughing at some really adult humor going on in there. And like, like I'm just right now picturing the, the pair of tits that are bouncing and wobbling in an insane way on the plane. <laughs> and the plane's got this crazy turbulence. <laughs> yeah. And it's just this gratuitous shot of this woman's boobs shaking all around. Yeah. Like, I remember that sticking very firmly in my head going, oh, my God, and being kind of shocked but laughing. And laughing at it just as much as the adults were, because I was just like, "Wow, check yeah. those boobs out!" <laughs> totally, that was one of the yeah. movies that I remember watching uh, and thinking, "Oh, this is this is the coolest movie ever." And speaking of cool, oh, that's so funny! You yeah. got a chance to work with David Zucker on Basketball, which I mean, when mm-hmm. I think about that, you know, I, I would it'd be hard for me if I was lucky enough to be in that position. I'm not sure if I would have been able to keep my fandom in check, like all of his movies were movies that me and my friends could, you know, quote up and down sideways, seen them all a dozen times. Plus, you know, what was that like working with him? Like, and and kind of meeting him for the first time and being part of that process. It was amazing. It was really fun because it, uh, you know, he'd obviously made me laugh so many times with like, obviously airplane and then naked gun and stuff. So to have a chance to actually make him laugh just felt really special it felt really cool i just that was one of the most awesome times i've ever had filming something we filmed for so long too we filmed for 11 weeks it was every day monday through friday i had my own car i had my own driver i felt like a total movie star it was awesome i had this lincoln town car that came and picked me up every morning took me to the studio and i'd work all day and then they'd drive me home oh that's and uh I just was so excited every time that guy showed up in my driveway because I was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to go fucking make David Zucker laugh. I'm going to make a bunch of people laugh. I'm going to uh, laugh all day. I'm literally just going to get paid to hang out and laugh. 
Like it was so fucking awesome. Oh, that's amazing. It was like, seriously, like a great, great experience. And the thing with David Zucker is he's really, he's really open to improv. He loves people to come up with stuff on the spot and he's not, you know, he doesn't have an attitude about it. Like the whole crew, it felt like this big giant family. Cause literally, you know, you could have some like lighting guy be like, you know, it'd be funny if you said this line or if you tried it like this. And it wasn't like he was overstepping his bounds. It was like this open environment where anybody was like, if they presented something that was funny and we all laughed, then David Zucker was like, well, yeah, let's try that. It's fucking funny. We just laughed at it. Let's do it. See how that works. Oh, that's so, so it was such a cool, open environment. Yeah, we were just constantly, you know, working with the script that was, you know, given to us each day. They were constantly rewriting jokes and give us a new script, but it was also kind of a blueprint that we could also move on from as well. So yeah. it was really cool. That's cool. Um, okay, so you, uh, let's just say for a moment that uh, an interstellar being that we talked about earlier visits you and he gives you and this is this is a, of all the things he could give you it's probably the worst thing you could get but he gives you the opportunity to wipe one of the two things i'm about to mention out of the consciousness of every living human being you can either snap your fingers and there never was a brady bunch there never was a jan brady marsha brady none of it and none of the derivatives like anything that had to do with brady bunch was gone and and wiped or Jersey Shore. There was never a Jersey Shore. There was never any <laughs> derivative. There's no Snooky. There's no situation. There's none of that. I would say absolutely Jersey Shore. Oh, yeah. thank you. Good. Yeah, yeah, get rid of that shit. Perfect. Uh, that That is yeah. the correct answer. All right, I need your help with something. So <laughs> there is, have you heard of, uh, first of all, do you own a Jeep Wrangler? No. Okay, good. Um, have you heard of the scourge that's uh, across our country called the Jeep wave. No. Oh, it's terrible. So, um, and I need your help helping to stop it. So basically what it is, it's class warfare inside an automobile. So these people that own these Jeep Wranglers, they think they're better Uh than everybody else. Right. So they, they do this weird thing when they're driving and they kind of like give the peace sign, give the shaka, like hang, hang loose. or they just wave to each other. And, and the thing is, they won't wave to a Jeep owner that's got a Renegade or a Sahara or any other non-Wrangler Jeep. It's only Jeep Wranglers that will <laughs> wave to each other, right? And okay. and, and, and it, it, I date a woman who owns a Jeep, and, and she does it all the time. And it started to really bug me because it's like, wait a second. Like, why I, I have a Jeep Cherokee. Why can't I wave to someone <laughs> with a Wrangler. Oh, it's only, it's a Jeep Wrangler thing. So then I, I go into the okay. Jeep dealership and, and here they are, all these pamphlets, they're promoting this Jeep wave. And I think it's really elitist. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, do you feel like it's worth the fight to stop the Jeep wave? <laughs> no, because I've never been aware of it. I don't really give a shit. <laughs> I never knew about it. Until you just mentioned uh, it, I didn't even well, know that was happening. Yeah, well, you're, you're going to see it now. It's going to drive you crazy. These people, they think they're Yeah, I'm going to be looking else. for it for sure. Yeah, it's, totally going to look for it. It's like, uh, you know, the, there's a there's a high proportion of people that do the Jeep Wave and also go to Jimmy Buffett concerts. So I, I'm pretty sure that those, <laughs> are, okay. those people are one the same. Um, so what are your feelings on the recently uh, proclaimed fact that hummingbirds are in fact the greatest pet on planet Earth? 
people have those as pets? Oh, well, see, that's the interesting part. So not inside. So they get to live in their natural habitat, right? You have your little bird feeder out there with the sugar water. Don't ever put dye in yours, guys. It's not good for them. Just the sugar and water mixture. And then they can come and you can uh, see them eat and they fly away. And they never have to be confined to a, a home. You never have to worry about feeding them actual food, taking them for a walk. You get enjoyment from them. They yeah. get enjoyment from you. Um, so I, I'm just wondering, you know, don't does, to you, don't you think that that's one of the best pets out there? I think uh, I think hummingbirds are awesome. I actually have a hummingbird feeder on my porch that uh, hummingbirds come to all the time, and it's it's cool. It feels like it's this magical thing when they come by. You're like, oh my god, here's that floating angel. Right. <laughs> Just totally. comes by them, comes swing by my place here and there. But yeah, it's amazing. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're really cool. They're masters of time and space. The way that they fly is something that <laughs> is just, it's amazing to behold. Oh, yeah. Have you ever heard one that kind of will ever like buzz you, like like come down by your ear and fly past you? Like oh, they yeah. sound like, they sound like little mini helicopters. <laughs> so like you, they're super loud up close when you can, you can actually hear them. It's like crazy. It sounds like the biggest bee ever. You probably already gathered this, but I have a hummingbird feeder as well. And I have a big red umbrella. They love the color red. So we'll just sit out on the porch mm -hmm. and they'll just, they'll come by and they, and they've gotten very comfortable with coming up to us. And now they'll come, mm -hmm. they'll kind of whip around our heads and they'll go to the feeder and they almost kind of like eat and they turn and look at us and eat and turn and look at us just to make sure we're still cool and we're not going to try to pull any stunts. Um, but yeah, they're one of my favorite <laughs> animals. I really dig them. Yeah, they're very cool. Totally. So I'm a huge improv fan and I've heard many of your other interviews, um, and I've heard you say on other podcast interviews that you've got a background uh, in improv, and, and and that has led to a lot of your opportunities. You went to school with Trey and Matt, um, and I think it was, I want to say it was Matt that you were in a, a film with that he was making, and your ability to improv with him kind of, you know, taught each other, these guys, you know, we're, we're both funny, we can be funny together. So my question is, do you have, a, a, like, formal training in improv, like, did you train UCB, or is it just something that you naturally know how to do because you are who you are? Yeah, I never had any training. Oh, I, uh, cool. I started doing it in, yeah, I had classes in high school, you know, acting classes. And uh, the thing where I really, really got to experience it and really practice it was because I was also the president of the uh, of my high school theater department. So we would always have our weekly meetings. But the weekly meetings were really mostly about us just kind of all of us hanging out and doing improv, just doing the weirdest shit and making each other laugh and trying to outdo each other with weirdness. And uh, that's really where I learned how to do it and, and developed a comfort level with it. And then um, then went into college and took some theater classes where, you know, improv was a portion of the uh, the class. And I always loved it. That was always my favorite part of every acting class is when we could do improv. But it's also something that I really um, took advantage to as a safety net as well, because I was also the president of the speech and um, speech and debate team called Forensics. And I didn't do any of the actual debating portion of it. But what I did do was what's called um, interpretive readings, where you would do a, uh, a 10 minute scene from some literature, either a play or a book. And you put together your own little 10 minute scene and you go up and you perform it in front of people at these tournaments. And I'd be competing against 
students from all around the state. And um, there were times where, you know, at the very beginning, especially when I was really nervous, mm-hmm. I would sometimes just straight up forget my lines. And I, I was like, holy shit. I, I wasn't ever really worried, though, because the thing is, I always knew what the story was. I knew what the the uh, um, the information was that needed to be conveyed. I didn't necessarily know sometimes what the lines were because I was nervous and I would forget. Right. But I was able to just pick it up anyway, and nobody ever knew. I actually I did some scenes from Of Mice and Men in the Sam Shepard play called Fool for Love, mm-hmm. and I actually rewrote like half the dialogue in a couple of these competitions. <laughs> Because I couldn't fucking remember my lines, but I felt like at the time, what I wrote was a little bit better sometimes. <laughs> I actually came up with some lines, because and they came out, um, I think, overall, is a better performance for me, because it didn't sound like I was um, reciting something. It sounded like I was actually talking, which I was. I was just actually just trying to relay some information, but I was doing it in character, and I was just speaking right. out of my head and heart in those moments, and it really... It really helped a lot because it made me um, it made me feel safe in knowing that any time I perform, that um, I can I, w- I can always you know grab onto my my comfort zone of improvisation and and not be so worried about the specificity of some of the lines when I'm doing something. Yeah, that's and cool. um, it's a, it's a skill that I've used consistently throughout my uh, my life. I was gonna say, in terms of skills to have, if you're in entertainment, it's pretty high up there as far as being able to pull it out of your hat. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. You know, and some people are just terrified of it. They just can't do it. And I, and I don't know that they can't do it. It's just that they haven't felt comfortable enough maybe yet to even really try. Yeah. It just takes a very, um, it takes mostly just experience of doing it and getting a comfort level with trusting yourself basically to, uh, to be quick on the spot and come up with something to say. And, and it's, it's not, it's not that hard to do if you actually know what the information is that you need to relay. Um, you can just uh, just put that information in your own words. And I've got a really bizarre sense of humor, so it also is a fun place for me just to showcase being a weirdo. <laughs> it's like it's a great thing. So I, I just I love it. I, I really miss doing improv. I almost am tempted to take some acting classes that really focus on just some improv. I did some stuff with the groundlings and audition with them before, but I really didn't enjoy it because it was such a, a very structured environment. They oh, have very specific time. games and rules that they follow. And right. that took the fun out of it for me. I didn't like that. So I'd rather just go to something that's a little more loose, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. So I, I've interviewed a few people that were um, in the UCB team in New York, and now they're part of rat scraps and they all kind of said the same thing, which is that, you know, learning the Herald and going through one, two, three, four of UCB or, or Groundlings or any of them, it, it's very yeah. rigid. It's almost like you're going through boot camp or some kind of military exercise. But then when you're done, they all said, well, we never did the Herald again. Like we just, we didn't want any of that structure. So now the the best improvisers in New York City are on this team called Rat Scraps and they never do the Herald. Um, and it's because yeah. they don't like that structure and the and the confines they just want to go out there and have fun and, and improvise so, yeah 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 absolutely yeah um all right so uh speaking of laughing uh which tv show uh and it doesn't have to be on now um but which tv show makes you laugh the most you know what i really love is uh what we do in the shadows 
now that, okay. uh, it's a vampire show. It's on Hulu on the FX channel. So I've seen the movie, but I haven't seen the, the TV show. Is the TV show as good as the movie? I think it's better. No way. Oh, I'm going to check it out. That's yeah, cool. it really is. Like Matt Berry. Matt Berry, I think, is just a fantastic actor. And he uh, he's amazing. And he's so funny. Well, the entire cast is incredible. But I've always been a big fan of Matt Berry. He was on this uh, this British show called The Toast of London, where he plays this down-and-out actor in London who's always going on these like really shitty auditions. <laughs> and, and he's just... He's so fucking funny. He's just... And I know a lot of it is improv, and he's just, just amazing. And he's got a really bizarre sense of humor, and it's really bled into this, what we do in the shadows as well. It's, uh, the entire cast is awesome. I, re- I laugh really hard at that show consistently. That's cool. Um, okay, so we're down to our last uh, three questions, three or four questions here. So um, the Mount Rushmore in, I forget which Dakota it's in, it's out there, one of those two. It's a it's in North it's a Dakota. North Dakota, very very nice, mm-hmm. um, and it's a, a stone carving of four ex presidents, right? And I always like to ask mm-hmm. people their Mount Rushmore of certain topics. So usually it's in relation to whatever field they're in, and and you obviously have been in some some very cool movies. Uh, you're an actor, so if you had to pick your Mount Rushmore, and I know this is a tough one, but your Mount Rushmore of movies, what would they be? What do you mean Mount Rushmore of movies? Movies that were impressionable to me? No, no, no. So you can only pick four, right? So there's four. If you like the people that made Mount Rushmore, they couldn't put 20 presidents up there. They had to pick four. So they picked the four that they felt like were the best representation of U.S. presidents. So what you're doing is taking that same concept of only picking four, right? So it's like you can't say like what's your your favorite movie. This is a little bit more broad, but it's not so broad. So the Mount Rushmore of movies would be like four movies that – you feel are up at the top of the quality of the movie heap, if you will. Hmm. At the top of the movie heap, I would say, or I, mean, I would say, well, movie, I'm just thinking of my favorite movies. Yeah, yeah like, it doesn't uh, have to be top of the quality. That's maybe the wrong way to put it. Just to you, your, your Mount Rushmore. Other people might think the movie is, you know, schlocky, but if you like it and then it belongs there. Blade Runner, which I'd mentioned before, that's yep. actually my all-time favorite movie. There I think go. that movie is just amazing. It's always incredible. I've seen it like a gazillion times, and it's always fantastic. Um, I actually, I just saw Casablanca again recently, amazing. and uh, Casablanca with uh, Humphrey Bogart is like one of the most beautiful and just cool representations of just what classic, elegant, old-school filmmaking looks like. And I mean, I think it's Totally agree. It's a perfect movie. It's such a great script. All the actors are amazing. And it's just, uh, it's such a cool fucking movie. It's really well done. I love that movie. Um, but then, you know, I also love, I love old school horror films. I think that um, Bride of Frankenstein is probably one of the greatest horror films ever made because it's also such a weird comedy as well. Right. Um, the guy that directed it, James Whale, has... Uh, you know, he's got a history of doing horror films, but he's he's got such a weird sense of humor that goes into all of his movies. Like I just saw The Invisible Man recently yep. with Claude Rains, who was also Claude Rains was in Casablanca. And it was also Claude Rains' very first movie was uh, Invisible Man. And it's such a creepy, like 
hardcore, like evil movie, like some really crazy shit that happens in it, but it's also got such a cool mix of comedy as well. But I think Bride of Frankenstein is really the pinnacle of what he was doing with such a beautiful blend of just classic old school looking film, but just bizarre humor on top of it that just gives it this unique feel that Mm. nothing else has. And then uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I love that. I really love old horror films. Creature from the Black Lagoon and Bride of Frankenstein are probably my top two favorites. And I think that Creature from the Black Lagoon is just a great movie because it's it's very cheesy on a certain level, but it's also a really beautiful love story. Mm-hmm. And just the design of the creature is just so cool. It's like one of the coolest creatures I've ever seen. It's uh, just an iconic image. And uh, I think it was actually the very first horror film that I ever saw as a kid. I saw it on a Saturday afternoon after watching cartoons all yep. day on, in the morning. There would be an old horror film on after that or some other bizarre movie. The Creature Double and Feature. Creature from the Creature from the Black Lagoon was the very first horror film I saw as a kid. And it just, it just affected me deeply when I saw it. I just was like, wow, this is the coolest film ever. I just loved it. And it's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just stuck with me. And then, of course, Star Wars. I think Star Wars is just uh, the very first one that was done, uh, The New Hope, Episode 4. Yep. You know, that's just got a – I mean, that's always amazing, too. I just – I get a great feeling every time I watch it. I just feel the same feeling I had as a kid when I first saw it. Yeah, that was the only movie that I ever stood in line for. I was seven with my whole family, and we stood in line for – my God, what seemed like hours, but it was probably like, you know, an hour and a half or something like that uh, outside the movie theater. Yeah. Uh, I had a yeah. Creature of the Black Lagoon action figure when I was oh, like yeah. eight or nine, and I wish I still had it. I have my Geronimo action figure, um, but it's- Was missing. it a little action figure? Was it the one no, that no, are like, like three those, and three quarters? No, it was the like- Amigo? The Amigo? No, it wasn't one of those. It was like the G.I. Joe size, like the big ones, like whatever, 11 or 12 inches. Um, that oh, cool. size, yeah. Um, I was really into horror movies too, and, and that one really freaked me out. There was a channel in Boston called Fifty Six and Thirty Eight, were two UF, UF, uh, UHF channels, and they would do the same thing: mm. It'd be cartoons, and then right after the cartoons, it'd be either a Godzilla movie or you know Dracula, Invisible Man, The Mummy, Frankenstein, all those. And uh, yeah. my brother used to watch them all the time. Do you ever see Dead Men Don't Wear yeah. Plaid? Oh yeah, with Steve Martin. That movie's brilliant. What a great idea! Yeah, you know, so far it is. It's time. so well done. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was great. It's a great movie. Um. Okay. Uh. Let's see here. Second to last question. What are your thoughts on the fourth dentist that does not recommend sugar-free gum? <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened to that guy. <laughs> I, sure. I think he's just trying to he's trying to get some more customers. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah, he's trying to keep long term repeat visits into his dentist chair uh, a thing, and and um, I'm onto him. Um, all right, so last yeah. question, the easiest question of all: What's next for you? What projects are coming up? Where can people find your work? Where, where what social media? Like where? What's going on with uh, with DN? Well, you know, some actually some very cool stuff. I'm uh, I'm actually developing 
a top secret little project with Les Claypool from Primus. Oh, very cool. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really excited. I'm playing a very, uh, very cool sort of villainous character in it. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Those kinds of characters are always fun. And it's something that I really, I'm not being me at all in any regard. It's just a really whacked out character. And Les Claypool's got such a great sense of humor. And it's really fun to work with him because, you know, comedy is really, I don't know if most people realize, it's very musical. Comedy is more about rhythm and beats and timing. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, his his understanding of music has really kind of led into his understanding of comedy. And he's really uh, he's really funny. He's got some really great ideas. So I'm very excited about working on that with him very soon. But then I also just wrote uh, my own movie. I wrote my own screenplay, a oh, feature-length wow. film that is a, a neo-noir murder mystery that I'm going to be starring in. And um, we uh, I've just finally had some really great meetings with some investors. So it's going to be a low budget. It's going to be about 3 to $5 million, but it's um, it's going to be enough to put out a product that's, I think, going to be really cool. It's, oh, that's uh, awesome. It's a story about a big city detective solving a double homicide with the help of a homeless guy who claims to be a time traveler. And oh. it's, uh, it all, it's all about the sort of the underbelly and black market world of murderabilia collectors. And it's, uh, it's a really cool script. I'm very proud of what I wrote. And I actually wrote the entire thing when I was out because I, I played a, a small role in Nightmare Alley. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which you'd mentioned before. Yeah. And I was in Toronto for two months on that. And I had a lot of downtime. They put me up in this really nice apartment. I had my own place to just hang out. And uh, it was crazy because it was you know during COVID as well. So they really didn't want us to be venturing out of the apartment too much to make sure that we were healthy. And we had, we had a nurse come by literally every day and swab our noses to make sure that we didn't have COVID. Sure. So I, I spent a lot of time just hanging out in my apartment. And I was just like, man, I'm going to write my own script. So I had actually, I'd been working for a while. I'd, I had like a couple hundred pages, literally, probably about 200 pages of notes. Because when I write, I like uh, I don't like to initially type. I, I write everything by hand. I use oh, a number wow. two pencil on paper. I like to write by hand, and that's how I get my ideas out. So I'd written pages and pages of scenes and dialogue and characters and things. And I basically just took that whole thing in a folder with me and brought it with me with my laptop. And it was a really cool kitchen I had. It had this big island in the center, this like big table to prepare food on but i used it to prepare my script on so i i put laid everything out all these stacks of pages all around and just kind of looked at it over and over again and assembled it almost like a big puzzle like all these jigsaw puzzle pieces damn and i i created my own screenplay when i was there for two months i wrote out the whole thing it came out to 101 pages typed used the final draft writing program on my laptop but uh it was such a great experience because it was just uh, um, a moment for me to really take the reins and do my own thing because I was a little upset when I was doing Nightmare Alley because I initially was supposed to be in like 18 scenes in the movie and they kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until finally I only had one scene at the very end of the movie. It was entirely because they they didn't want, they decided, and I'm not going to say who, but they, a couple people in the movie decided that that the freak characters were an an unnecessary component of the story and that they were more of a visual distraction and somehow detracted from the other actors. And the thing is, the movie was a remake. The original had no freaks in it whatsoever. 
And the book really doesn't have any freaks in it. The only reason they were put in there was because Guillermo del Toro is literally a big fan of the movie Freaks, the Todd Browning film. Right. And he had always wanted to remake that movie and saw this because it was about a carnival and so forth, that it would be a good showcase to kind of kind of pay homage to this other movie that he loves. So I had a really a great character. It's based on a real woman by the name of uh, Cuckoo the Bird Girl, but he renamed me to Fifi the Bird Girl. And it was based on a real woman by the name of Minnie Woolsey, who was mm. uh, um, a sideshow freak performer. She was just a very unusual looking woman who was in the movie Freaks. But she actually worked on Coney Island until she died. She was like 82 years old. And uh, she worked consistently and was really happy as a performer. So I thought it was a really cool chance for me to to pay some homage to her. But the fact that they kept rewriting things and my part got such an marginalized um, ending that I was like, it was the motivator really is the kick in the pants I needed to just say, you know what, I got to make my own shit. I, I'm not going to sit around waiting for people telling me what they think they, I can do or, you know, auditioning for this or that, which is always a great thing. I love to be a part of other things, but I just was like, man, I need to really just make my own shit. So that's what I did. I took that, that moment to just say, hey, I'm going to write a movie that I would like to see. I'm going to write a movie that I want to act in. I'm going to write a part for myself that I've always wanted to play. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm going to film that hopefully in the spring in Pittsburgh. That is fucking cool as hell, man. And you know what? I'm gonna wa- yeah. I'm gonna watch that movie just to see if that homeless dude is really a time traveler or not. When you said time traveler, I'm like, I'm in. I, I just <laughs> I, I love everything about yeah. that premise. That's so that's so cool. And, and the motivation to do it coming from a place of you know frustration instead of being frustrated and you know taking that frustration and and drinking or doing something stupid and just whining and instead of doing all that, you just yeah, I could have all. been just smoking pot and watching cartoons all day, but I was like, <laughs> no, right, exactly. I'm going to fucking write a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So that's, that's really what cool. I did, yeah. And uh, I'm assuming you're on Instagram and everything like that. Uh, I don't know if you want to. I am. Yeah, I'm on it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I need to start using it more. I'm kind of a. I need to do that because I guess it's just a good way for people to keep track of you that way. But I'm a big Facebook nerd, though, is what I use a lot. And, okay. Uh, I use Twitter here and there, so I need to start using both Instagram and Twitter more. Awesome. But yeah, I will always have updates on both those kinds of things, talking about stuff, so people could check stuff out there. Cool. Well, uh, if you could see our live studio audience right now, you would see that they are all uh, on their feet. They're doing the wave. They've got these big, huge orgasmo flags (laughs) that they're waving like a British soccer game. Um, and, and truly, I really appreciate you being, uh, on the show. I am a big fan of, of your work. I mean, it's, I remember being, uh, in an apartment with my friends and having the, their movie basketball and orgasmo, I think wasn't orgasmo funded by like some weird Japanese sex toy company. Is that a a myth? Is that true? No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. In fact, I, I had written a sequel to the movie, which I, may end up doing somehow eventually but i i actually i was really happy with the script i wrote but then after i investigated it further i found out that the rights are just so difficult to get because october films um they're the ones that purchased the movie when we showcased it at the toronto film festival mm-hmm. but then october films um they went bankrupt and so what happens oftentimes when film companies go under is their entire film catalog, their film library gets purchased either by another studio or in this, in what happened here was this Japanese investment company. 
There's wow. some investment company in Japan that owns Orgasmo. So I realized after talking to some people that it was going to take some serious legal wrangling yeah. to try to be able to get that to happen. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to write a cooler movie now. <laughs> so I wrote man. my movie, which is called The Stylus. And it's also a, um, a reference to Edgar Allan Poe. He actually plays a small role in my movie. Oh, that's cool. Because um, Edgar Allan Poe was uh, the very first um, murder mystery writer. He wrote the very first murder mystery. And uh, he for years before he passed away, he really, his dream was to have a magazine publication that he was going to be the editor in chief. And it was going to be a collection of all of his favorite writers. And he was, the name of the magazine was the stylus. And uh, so I named my movie, the stylus partially in honor of that in reference to that, but also because a stylus is a tool that communicates information. And uh, um, there's an aspect to the movie that really adheres to that. That's freaking cool. That's uh, inside information there, guys. Wait for it. Wait for when it comes out. Um, again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a pleasure. I'm looking forward to all of your upcoming projects. Uh, and I might even go back and watch basketball again. It's been probably 15 or 20 years since I've seen it. Um, well, you know, it's fun. I'm sorry to interrupt, no, but no, I, actually, I, get, I get to see that with a big audience in, uh, in November. Because I'm a big... Uh, I'm a, a big JFK assassination history buff. Oh, so cool. I've just I've watched so many documentaries and stuff about it. And it's, I finally got to go to Dealey Plaza recently. And I, I uh, took this really cool tour where I actually mm. went into Oswald's old house. I went into the house that he lived in and wow. it's crazy. It's like this little time capsule. The lady that owns the house is the granddaughter of the woman who originally owned it. And she hasn't changed a single thing in that place. It looks exactly the same. It's like a little timestamp from 1963. And uh, what's really cool is that when I was there, while we were going on the tour, we stopped by the old theater, the Texas Theater yeah. um, in Dallas, where Oswald was arrested. He actually snuck into the theater, and there was a movie on called um, uh, War is Hell. And every year, they, um, they show the movie War is Hell. They have like this whole Oswald festival, I think on like November... 22nd or something the day before he uh or no 21st maybe and, and so they i don't know exactly when they're going to do it but they uh one of the guys the guys that own the theater they found out that i am really into jfk's assassination in a weird way and they they wanted to know if i would come out there because i guess they have events all the time and they have screenings of movies and it's a really beautiful old theater it's got an incredible history on top of the oswald aspect but it's really great place and i was really excited because they offered me a chance to come screen basketball with a big audience and to do a q a and to stay for a couple days and then get to go to the oswald event so yeah i get to see basketball again with an audience which will be a lot of fun that is super cool um one final thing and then and then i'll let you go is i remember being in dallas on a business trip 1996 walking around and all of a sudden realizing oh my it was like six or seven of us and like just this is where it happened we're just like yeah you know it's a nondescript or at least at the time i'm not sure if it's changed it was a long time ago but it was just such a nondescript place which just like oh my god it was right here and you can look around and it's well, like they, kind of unchanged from when it happened at the time you know well yeah what happened was though was that um when oliver stone did jfk he uh his his film production company paid 
for a ton of renovations to be done within whole, that whole Dealey Plaza to make it look exactly like it did. And because of that movie, they kept it that way. And his movie actually helped kind of lock the look forever now wow. of what Dealey Plaza looked like on that day. I went back there a couple of years ago and it felt like I was in 1963. I was like looking around all the buildings and everything. It was, it's, it looks exactly the same. That's amazing. It's a good thing to be focused on. It's a pivotal point in history for a lot of reasons. And we could have a whole podcast about that. I'm sure. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, looking forward to everything and I hope you have a great night. Thank you. You too, man. I appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate that. Thank you.